Father, as we hear your holy words, let us understand the meaning as much now as when they were spoken. Open our hearts and minds to do your will. Amen. Today's lesson is in Jeremiah, the 23rd chapter, verses 1 through 6. In this, the prophet Jeremiah is telling of the exile, the return, and the coming of the Messiah. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil doings, says the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A word of thanks to the Handbell Choir for that wonderful uh, rendition and for the fact of how it helps prepare us for the Thanksgiving season. Um, it's always been helpful to know music as a preacher because there's been many times when I had to play and preach. So it takes a little longer to move than it did just this time, but nevertheless, it's just part of the process. Our New Testament lesson is Luke 23. If you have your pew Bibles, I would invite you to turn to this portion of Scripture. It's about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And it's one that is very descriptive about who Jesus is as King. Luke 23, verses 33 through 43. Listen now for God's word. When they came to the place that is called the skull... They crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him some sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription over his head, quote, This is the king of the Jews. 
One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed have been condemned justly for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then the criminal said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. When I was a student at Presbyterian College in Clinton, South Carolina, one of the many activities I participated in were student service projects. And the one project I particularly enjoyed was called COP, Child Outreach Program. And every Wednesday afternoon for several hours, college students would go out to a mill community and work with disadvantaged children. And we did kind of like a vacation Bible school within two hours. That is, we did Bible study and we did songs and we did recreation and did refreshments. It was quite a nice change from the college routine every week. Well, one week I was doing the Bible study and was with the fifth and sixth grade children. And I just don't know why I did it, but I said, what does it mean to be saved? And I figured I'd get all these stares like, you know, what are you talking about? But quickly this sixth grade girl spoke up and said, to be saved means you've got to be sanctified and filled with the Holy Ghost. And it kind of took me back because I thought, "Woo, she was very definitive in that. I said, well, what does that mean? Well, to be sanctified means you don't wear jewelry or lipstick or rings or hose. And to be filled with the Holy Spirit, it means you speak in tongues. And I looked at her because I noticed what she was wearing and in a probably snide kind of way said, but you have on rings and lipstick and some hose I see. And she quickly said, I'm not saved yet. And I tell you, it just kind of blew me away thinking about that. But she had decided she had not qualified. She had not passed the test. She had not earned her salvation. And while that is kind of a humorous kind of story in some ways, I do think it's a story that all of us need to face. What would happen this morning, and I'm not going to do it, so don't get too shook, if I would bring a microphone around in the congregation and say, what does it mean to be saved? What would you say? What would it mean to you? For today, I want us to explore the notion of salvation. For as I've mentioned before, this is Christ the King Sunday. It's literally the last Sunday in the Christian calendar. It's kind of our New Year's Eve for the Christian calendar because the New Year starts next week with the beginning of Advent. We throw all kind of titles around for Jesus. Prophet, priest, and king are the three most familiar ones. And we don't have much trouble with him as prophet and priest. That is, he proclaimed the kingdom of God was coming. He proclaimed that now you need to repent and believe in the gospel. He also, as a prophet, as a priest, he would minister to the woman at the well he went to see Zacchaeus to talk about his salvation, so we don't have much trouble with that. When it comes to Jesus being the king, we have a little more difficulty with that, at least in terms of our understanding of what kings are. 
And the passage Martha read from Jeremiah's scripture indicates what the kings were in Israel. And they were not a very decent lot of folks. They were not model citizens. They were rather ruthless. And they were known to be shepherds because as a shepherd, they were supposed to take care of their constituents, their citizens, their kingdom, and make sure everything worked pretty well. But they had gotten awfully greedy. They had gotten to the point they wanted to have all the power. They had declared that they had gotten rid of people and scattered them to different countries because it was threatening their kingship. They had gotten to the point where they were going to be in charge. But when you think about kings, it seems like to some extent this is kind of normal practices for kings. For aren't kings just one day from being overthrown if they don't keep all their subjects happy and in line? Don't kings have to have absolute sway and power and control in order to run their kingdom? Aren't kings all about power? about being number one, about being top of the heap. Kind of reminds me of that children's game that we play, King on the Mountain. And the way you win that is you're stronger and you're more dominant and you keep throwing other kids off the, quote, mountain so that you remain as the one. Well, this had become the notion in Israel and God had had enough of the king's antics. He had decided that he was going to become the shepherd and that God would bring back all of the remnant, all the people that had been exiled and sent from to various countries. He was going to bring them back so he could show what a real shepherd was like. And as being the shepherd, he would demonstrate what it meant to be the shepherd of the sheep. And ultimately, the scripture tells us God would raise up a new shepherd in the branch of David. And his name would be the Lord is Righteousness. It would be a way to see what a real king ought to be and how a real king would operate. It would th set things straight so that people in the kingdom felt at home and felt comfortable and were able to live a decent kind of life. For this new king would create a new normal for what a king meant. It'd be quite different from the ways of this world It'd be quite different from the stereotypical view of kings. It would be very different from the Israeli kings that had gone before. And it's the passage from Luke that gives us a clue of what this new king would look like. And at least from the Lucan passage, it's not a palace that the king is in. It's not royal garments that he is wearing. It's not all these soldiers and people around supporting him. No, it's a view from the skull, from Golgotha, from the place where Jesus was crucified. And this becomes the new definition of what it means to be king of kings. It really points to a whole different picture of what it means to be a king and it points to a different picture of what salvation means. For Jesus was hung between two thieves. Is that a king? The leaders of that day scoffed at him as he was hanging on the cross. What kind of king has leaders against you? Jesus was mocked by the soldiers who, who gambled for his clothing. If you don't have an army, you can't be a very strong king or at least not last for very long. And one of the criminals mocked him and derided him and saying, if you have got the stuff, show it to us. 
And what Jesus said to them was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. A whole new notion of being king. Seems to me that this story forces us into reading what the powers of Jesus are all about. It forces us to reconsider what it means to be saved. It demands that we're clear about our salvation and what God is doing with us. For Jesus is showing us what real power is when he was powerless, when he was vulnerable, when he was showing us what it means to live life to the fullest as he hung upon that cross. A big takeaway for me about the whole notion of salvation is that salvation is not a state of being. It's not something you graduate into. It's not something that has a diploma for you or has a certificate. It's not like the sixth grade young girl who said, I'm just not saved yet because I haven't earned my place. Salvation also is not an insurance policy that will protect us and take us over to the other side as long as we pay the premiums. That is living a good life and a decent kind of life. No, I think salvation, at least for me from this story, is about a relationship. It's about a relationship and not just any relationship. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ and how I allow that relationship to be lived out in my life. How that salvation makes a difference in who I am and how I live. For you see, none of these people, the leaders or the soldiers or the criminals, had any kind of relationship with Jesus. They had all these conditional clauses. If you're the Messiah, show us. If you're the king of the Jews, do something. If you really are the savior of the world, show us what you can do. And it reminds me of the temptations of Christ. When the devil, who had no relationship with Christ, would tempt Jesus and said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to be turned into bread. If you want all authority and power, bow down and worship me. If you really are the son of God, throw yourself down from the temple and your angels will come and scoop you up. Jesus was tempted by the devil. Jesus was tempted on the cross to perform and accomplish certain feats to show he really was the real stuff. And he didn't bite. Because Jesus is not a performer. Jesus is not a magician. Jesus is not all about himself. Jesus is about you and me. Jesus is about other people. Jesus is about helping us to live life and live it to the fullest. Jesus is about having a relationship with each and every one of us. It was the second thief on the cross that said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, to which Jesus responded, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's what it's all about. Salvation, relationship with Christ, and today. Salvation is about a personal relationship with Christ, not a new state of being or a graduate kind of position. Salvation is about today. It's not about the future and somewhere off when you die. People are often curious about when were you saved? 
and they'll bug you about, when were you saved? Give me a time and a date. And I think you can answer that. For you were saved in A.D. 33 when Jesus rose from the dead, when he came back to life after the crucifixion and in his resurrection. That's the date of salvation. And it may be that we come to an awareness of that gift at a certain time in our lives, in a church retreat or in a worship service or in some deep, dark moments of our lives. We realize that that gift is there for us. But it's that gift that happened in AD 33 and it's that relationship we're into now with Christ for it to mature and for it to grow. It's not some accomplishment I've made. It's not some badge I wear. It's a relationship that I nurture and is nurtured by the Holy Spirit every day of our lives so that I and you can be the full person God intended us to be. For you see, this salvation, this relationship with Christ enables us to become whole and complete. It enables us to be the people God intended us to be. My contention is we are not who God intended us to be without this relationship, without this person, Jesus, without living into a new kind of creation. In this relationship, I finally can become the person God wanted me to come. And Jesus on the cross illustrates what this saved life is about. He illustrates what salvation really means as he lived it out as he died there upon the cross of Calvary. It's about the forgiveness of other people and willing to be forgiven and also to forgive. Its power is being vulnerable its genius is living a life without a grudge or without animosity. And Jesus had all the rights to have all those angry and upset feelings because he suffered a horrendous physical death. His ministry was mocked for what he had done and he was being made a spectacle, sitting, lying, rising there between two thieves. And what did Jesus do? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. The story is told about Jimmy Carter when he was going to the funeral for Hubert Humphrey and when all these dignitaries and leaders from around the world were there and they were gathering in a room before the service and Richard Nixon was in the room following all of the debacle with Watergate and Carter came into the room and noticed that Nixon was standing over to the side and noticed that whenever he got close to people, they would kind of walk away. And so he was kind of alone. So Carter goes over and says, Mr. President, welcome home. We're glad you're here. That gift, that sense of compassion is exactly illustrative of what salvation means in one's life. That you have the ability and the desire to welcome and to accept others. And in that, we're told, according to Newsweek, that Nixon turned around completely in terms of his own animosity and feelings. Kelly Gissendainer, murdered her husband in 1997 in Georgia, her husband Douglas. She went to prison and was to be executed. And in prison, she found Christ 
and in that experience began to live a whole new and different life and began to witness and ministry to other people in prison, even got a certificate from Emory University in theology. And before her execution, some of the correction officers, as well as some inmates, as well as Pope Francis and her adult children, pled that she might have life imprisonment instead of being executed. The appeals were made and they went for nothing and she died for that. It shows what can happen regardless of who you are or where you are or what's going on in your life. This past Wednesday night in our um, little class that we do after uh, the Wednesday night supper to help me write a sermon is basically what the class is about. One of the people said that when they found that as you get older, you don't carry grudges like you used to. You're not as resentful to people as you were. And there's something about aging that helps that. And we all thought, well, that's a good idea. And then we thought, we know some pretty crusty old people and not sure age has anything to do with it. And we came to the conclusion that what happens is as you mature in your relationship with Christ, you become less needing to have control and less needing to hold grudges and less needing to be of offense to other people. So again, it's back to your relationship in Christ versus your age. It's your maturity in your faith. It's hearing what Christ had to say and being willing to live that out for his kingdom and for his world. So the question comes back to every one of us. How about you? Who's the person you're carrying a grudge against? Who's the person you need to forgive? Who's the person you need to make that relationship right again? This is Christ the King Sunday, the end of the calendar year in the church. It might not be a bad idea to have a New Year's resolution. New Year's resolutions of how we might see that our salvation is lived out day by day by day in our relationship with other people, just like Christ lived it out and gave his life for us. So that we live a life that is forgiving and also is forgiven, just as Christ has done for us. For in doing that, we become complete and whole and the people God intended for us to be. And for that, we give thanks and praise and glory to Almighty God. Let us pray. Eternal God, thank you for ways in which we can live life fully, in which we can live out our faith, in ways in which we can be the person you intended us to be. Help us, O oh God, to be forgiving. Help us, O oh God, to be models of who Christ was so that our salvation is a clear witness to others and to the world. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.